Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning, guys. Um, kids, if you didn't leave, you can go if you want to. If you want to stay, then feel free. We are in the book of James. <laughs> Hi, Barry. <laughs> I'll talk about this later. I won't let this go unsaid. But yes, I, as Scott put it, I have a boo-boo today, which is why I'm sitting so I can prop my arm up on my leg. So hopefully you guys can see me. I know you can hear me, so we'll be okay. Um, James is one of those books that is just really practical. And that seems like the sort of thing that we need in our lives. Uh, we can have lots of fun discussions about philosophy and theology. And as somebody who minored in philosophy, I really enjoy that stuff. But when the rubber meets the road, we need to know how do we live out our faith every single day. And that's where the book of James comes in. It gives us really practical advice on what do we do in our everyday situations that we're in, okay? Uh, so this is, our, this is technically our third week, uh, though last week when the bishop was here was the first week we actually jumped into James. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to open it up uh, to James chapter 1, and we're going to be in verses 12 to 18 this morning. And we're going to start by reading that passage, and I believe we can put it on the screen as well. So if you don't have a Bible, you can look it for it there. Starting at verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial... Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the, world of through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So we're going to first start this morning by digging into the very first part of the first sentence. So what I'm looking at is, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Now, when we look at that first part, this week, the word that I think needs to stick out to us is the word persevere, because we've already talked about blessed, right? Two weeks ago, we jumped into Matthew chapter 5, and I talked about being salt, and we talked about blessed. Blessed is a word that we see show up throughout the New Testament. This is the same word in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about who the kingdom of heaven is for, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the same word. So we've, we've touched on this word. The other word that can stick out to us is the word trial. And last week when the bishop was here, he talked about trials. And perhaps when he talked about trials, maybe you thought about something that you're going through right now. You know, Scott, in his prayer time, he mentioned that we're all going through stuff, and that's true. So perhaps there's something that stuck out to you last week, a trial that you're going through, or something that you've recently been through. And if that's the case, I wanna encourage you to kind of picture that again. 
Put yourself in that place and think about that trial that you're going through. If you weren't here last week, then I'm encouraging you to think about something that you've struggled through because that's where this, this passage starts. James is telling us that when we go through that difficult thing, we are blessed if we persevere, okay? When we go through the difficult trial, we're blessed if we persevere. Now that word persevere, we could also translate that to mean to stay behind or to endure, all right? I wanna give you a little illustration to help get at the idea of persevere. A few years ago, I used to work in construction. And one such week, we had just put a big addition on this house. And at one end of the house, the roof was one story high. But on the end that we put the addition on, the roof was three stories high. And I showed up at the job site that day, and my job was to finish putting the cap shingles on the roof. If you know what that is, that's the shingles that are right on the peak. So imagine you're at the tippy top of the peak, and you're putting the last shingles over top of the peak at that point. Well, the closer I got to the edge of the three-story roof, it seemed like the more the wind picked up. And it just blew me more and more and more. And so I hung onto that roof for dear life. I put a shingle down, put a nail in, moved on to the next, closer and closer and closer to the end of the building. And I swear, by the time I got to the edge of the building, I was being blown back and forth. And as, a, as someone who doesn't really like heights a whole lot, I can tell you I was a bit scared, right? So I hung on. I hung on to that roof with my legs, with my hands, and I waited until the wind would die down enough to put the shingle on, put the nail in, and keep going. That's the picture I want you to have when you think of persevere. Don't think about getting off of the roof and leaving the job incomplete because the wind buffeted you so much. Think about staying and finishing the job though the wind was pushing against you. That is persevere, all right? So get off the roof, get back into your life for a second and think about the thing you're going through right now. Think about the thing that has been pushing against you, blowing you back and forth. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a big decision you have to make in your life. Maybe, um, maybe it's something with your health. And you feel like you're being pushed back and forth. And the closer you get to the edge of the roof, the wind just keeps picking up. And it's pushing you around. And the thing that you want to do is you just want to give up. You just want to get down. If I get down and give up, the wind's not going to be pushing me anymore. Okay? Blessed are you who persevere in the midst of the trial. Blessed are you when you stay, when you keep trying, when you keep going, when you stay behind, when you endure despite the wind that blows you. Now, let's talk about the church. Let's talk about the church big C, you know, the, the American church, church in our country. I think this verse is apt for us to consider as the church big C because I think, in many ways, we have failed here. And here's what I mean by that. One of the, the, the problems that we have in the church big C is that we have been assigned an incredibly important job in this world and in this country. And that is that we are supposed to love one another. Okay? Now, I know, I've, I say this all the time, maybe you get tired of me talking about love, I'm sorry, love is the most difficult thing that this book is ever gonna tell you to do. 
And I'll tell you why. Because you're supposed to love your enemy. You're supposed to love your neighbor. You're supposed to love the person who wrongs you, the person who persecutes you. You're supposed to love the person who doesn't look like you or sound like you. You're supposed to love the person who's on the edge of society, who's been marginalized, who's been cast aside and pushed out. You're supposed to love the person that no one else will love. You're supposed to love the person who's in prison, love the person without clothes, love the person who has no food, and the list goes on and on and on and on. That is the assignment that we have been given, is to love one another. When we love one another, the world knows that we follow Jesus. And the problem that I see in the church Big C is that we have allowed a lot of voices to tell us to stop loving one another. And those voices are sometimes guised in politics. Sometimes they're guised in a really great sermon from an evangelical pastor. It sounds like it's biblically rooted, but if you read between the lines, he's telling you to stop loving other people because they're different than you. We have let voices in that have told us, hey, that is too hard. You don't need to put yourself through that. That person has been involved long enough that they should know better. Don't love them, walk away from them, depart from them. You're just wasting your time, you're wasting your energy, you're wasting your resources because that person is never going to whatever it is that you think that they're supposed to do. And so, what we have done is we have chosen to cut people off rather than love people in. Now, I want you to hear me. I want to be really clear here. I'm not talking about like an abusive relationship. If somebody is here today or somebody's listening online that is in an abusive relationship, this is not me saying stay in the abusive relationship and continue to be abused. No, I'm not saying that. There's no place for an abusive relationship. That's not honoring anybody. I think love is really tricky, okay? And I think if we take the commands to love one another in the Bible really seriously, when the rubber meets the road in a really practical way, we're gonna have to really figure out how to love people who don't love us. Most of us have never had to love our enemy. Not truly, not really. Maybe you've had to love somebody who didn't like you. But that's not what's being talked about here in the Bible. Loving your enemy is the people who are trying to kill you. Okay, loving our enemy is a big call. And yet that is the call that Jesus places on us. So, so hear me when I say, we're not talking about abusive relationship, but we are talking about pushing ourselves to say, I'm called to do something that I don't wanna do, that I don't feel like doing, that I know is hard, and that there's a whole lot of voices that if I pay attention to the right voices, they're telling me I don't have to do it. Now hear what I'm saying. We've directly chosen to cut people out rather than to love people in rather than to love people in. One of the things that historians record in the first few centuries of the Christian church, in particular the first century, the first generation of believers to create the church that will grow into this worldwide phenomenon, they note that the thing that sets the Christian community apart from all other communities of the day is the way they love one another and not just the people who are their brothers and sisters in the community, but the people who are outcasted, the people who are marginalized on the edges of society. 
we are often not choosing to love people in. You have one job. I know there's a lot of things we get caught up in. You have one job. Love people in. Instead, what we try to do is judge people in. And that's not your job. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think it works. You can judge people in all you want. And if you get somebody in your community because you judge them in, they're only going to do what you showed them to do and what you've created as a Pharisee. But if you love somebody into your community, you've created a disciple. Your job is not to judge people in, but to love people in. And so the voices that you're paying attention to, whatever that celebrity pastor is that you like to listen to, who's making it very easy, or whatever that political voice is that has a conservative Christian root to their base that's making it sound pretty easy and we don't have to do this or this or this, I urge you to be careful. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I would not be a very good pastor if I told you what to believe. I'm going to give you all the tools and then let you go. Be cautious. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, then dig into the word. Don't just listen to all the voices that have all the airtime. So what does it mean when James says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial? I think 100% he is restating what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 already. And he said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. James is saying almost the identical thing. And he finishes it with a very similar promise. James says, um, for once you have been approved, you receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James is hearkening back to the most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave. Blessed are you when you endure through the trials that are placed before you. Blessed are you when you choose love over judgment, despite the voices that are floating around you. Now, in verse 13, James makes a really important statement that we can't afford to miss, all right? So if you have your Bibles, take a look at verse 13. Let me just reread it here for us really quick. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, okay? That's a pretty big, bold statement, now, here's the thing. The passage we're looking at this morning, verses 12 to 18, I'm not going to lie. It's thick if you let it be. Now, you can just read it really quickly and maybe get a couple things from it. But if you, if you sit in it, like we're sitting in it this morning, there's some meat to this. It's pretty big that James says that God is not the one who's tempting you. So hear me when I say this. God cannot be the promoter of something that is against his nature. God cannot be the promoter of something that is against his nature. Now, we live in a world of celebrity Christians, celebrity pastors, big musicians, right? People that have really big platforms. They're in charge of um, mega churches and global ministries. And it seems like if we watch the news left and right, we're watching them fall from grace one after another. 
being accused of all sorts of things, whether it's sexual immorality, abuse, favoritism, nepotism, slander, embezzlement, you name it. The people who have been the biggest voices, and in so many ways, sometimes they've been our heroes, are falling down right in front of us. It would be very easy for one of those folks to blame God for the trouble they've gotten themselves into. I've even read accounts where pastors excuse their infidelity because of the pressures of leadership. Maybe you've read some of those accounts too. God gave me this leadership. There's all this pressure on me. So yes, I did this thing, but it's okay. It somehow seems to excuse their sin, though they would never excuse the sin of one of their followers in that same way. Their logic seems to say that they would never have gotten in this sort of trouble or fallen in this way if God had never placed them in that sort of leadership position. But what James is telling us is the opposite of that. What James is telling us is that God does not tempt any of us. Instead, James is going to give us a pretty thick, dense understanding of how sin and temptation work, okay? Verses 14 and 15, I'm gonna read these for you so they're fresh in our head. But each one, this is right after he says that God doesn't do the tempting and God cannot be tempted. He says, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. All right. I'm, this week was a weird week for me. And mostly because on Monday I had some surgery, and so I got some painkillers after surgery and did my best to do a sermon this week. And what I thought I would do this morning is kind of pull the curtain back a little bit and give you guys uh, kind of a peek at how I process through a verse. And I thought I would do that um, because I couldn't get my brain to put it into words, but also because I thought it might help you as you process through Scripture, Perhaps there's something in the way that I engage it that will help you in the way that you engage it. And, here, and here's the first thing I'm gonna say. It's not just enough to read this stuff, right? We gotta dig into it more than that. So here's the first thing I wanna do. Um, Randy, I have two pages of notes in there. Perfect, well, here's the first page. So I just took some pictures of some of my notes. And I thought I'd share these with you. The first thing that I do when I come across this passage, now look, again, this is a thick passage. James has given us his understanding of how sin and temptation work. So it's something we should pay attention to. So the first thing that I do is I write down the order in which James says this process happens, all right? So the first thing is we're tempted, and then the next thing is we're enticed by desire, and then there's sin, and then there's death. All right, so the first thing I do, I write down the order, and the next thing I do is I put some sort of example through that so I get an understanding. So it's not just James's words, it's also my words now. So let's, no, go back to the other page for me. Let's leave that on the screen first. So let's put an example through there. One of the things that we're seeing a lot of these Christian celebrities be accused of is sexual immorality, it's adultery, all right? So let's, let's put adultery through that, okay? So the first thing is, 
Um, maybe my marriage isn't great. Maybe I've been struggling in my relationship with my wife in some way. And so I'm thinking about how I'm really not happy. And that's sort of my first phase. Maybe I work with somebody who's, um, who's just really attractive. And I wonder to myself, is the grass greener on the other side? Right? So there's this temptation of, well, perhaps, maybe, because I'm not happy, because things aren't going well, maybe the grass is greener on the other side. And then I start to think about it. I start to, like, spend time thinking about this other person in ways that I should not be thinking about this other person. I begin to become enticed by my desire to really find out, is the grass greener on the other side? Well, not long after I've played that out in my head a thousand times, it becomes that much easier to actually take the step. Then I'm given an opportunity at a work party or something else. There's an opportunity, a moment, when I can cross the line into sin. And of course, with sin brings death. Okay, so first thing, I write down the order. The next thing, I think about something that can work through that process so that I can make sure I'm actually understanding what James is saying. Are you understanding? As you think through the process, do you see how it's this step-by-step? It's just that easy to take the next step? Okay, good. Now, the next thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go to the next page of notes for me, Randy, is I'm gonna look at the actual words in this, okay? And so here's my notes. I'll just explain my notes to you and then we'll work through this. In the rectangle boxes are the Greek words, Okay, and then above those are the words that my Bible translates those Greek words to. And so you can see tempted, enticed, lust and desire, sin, and death. Now, lust and desire, both those words are there because it depends on how new your NIV is as to whether it's lust or it's desire. And I wanted to to tell you guys too, this is a perfect opportunity. I've been looking for a place to slip this into a sermon at some point. Just because you come across a new translation of Scripture doesn't mean it's bad, all right? In fact, um, if you have a Bible that's older than 1950, chances are your translation is actually not great because around 1950, we found something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And without going into a whole bunch of nerdy stuff about the Dead Sea Scrolls, Finding the Dead Sea Scrolls changed everything in how we understand how to translate the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And so for the last 70 years, scientists, um, theologians have been working through how to translate these words better, which is why the 1987 NIV uses desire and the 2010 NIV uses lust, because they begin to get a better translation or handle on some of these words, okay? So, so just know that, just because there's a different translation than the one in front of you where it's a newer one doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. That doesn't mean that all translations are good either, okay? So Greek words in my rectangles, above it is what my Bible translates those to, and then below that are some, some more robust definitions of those words. And so just like if you went to an English dictionary and you looked up a word, at least 60% of the time, you're gonna find multiple definitions under that, right? Definition one, two, three, four. The same is true for Greek and Hebrew. You're gonna find multiple definitions of that word as you look up what that word means. Sometimes the same word is used for two very different things. 
And then knowing both definitions isn't really helpful. But sometimes you have a whole bunch of words that mean something very similar, and translators pick one. And in the case of our verse this morning, that, that is the case. And so let's, let's work through these words. We're going to first start with tempted. Another way to think of the word tempted, and if you can read my writing, great. If you can't, that's okay. I wrote the word prove and examine underneath it, okay? Another way to think of the word tempted is as an examination, like a test. The purpose of an examination is to ascertain your knowledge of a subject matter, right? I mean, you take a driver's test to prove that you know how to drive, right? I mean, it's very simple. That's what the purpose of a test is. The purpose of a temptation in so many ways is to prove your faith, your virtue, or your character, okay? Now, here's the only problem with me saying that. People then want to go, oh, God's the test giver. So God's giving me the temptation. No, 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 wait. James just told us that's not what's happening, okay? So we can't go there. Don't jump there. Consider it this way. Think about like if you're driving down 283 toward Lancaster and you blow your tire. What do you have to do? Pull over and then change your tire. Does it matter if you hit a nail? Does it matter if you hit a pothole? Does it matter if your tires are super bald? No, not really in that moment, not at all. What matters is, do you know how to change a tire? It, it's not about God throwing nails on the road trying to pop your tires. That's, that's not what's happening, okay? That's not what a, the temptation is. But a temptation is a moment that you get to prove your knowledge in the exam, okay? You get to decide, you get to show whether you can change the tire or not. Think about it this way. Think about when you were learning how to do long division when you were in elementary school, all right? You got to the point at some point where you could look at those division problems and you could write the answer. You did it in your head, right? And so, you know, like simple ones, your, your answer's three. And then your teacher gives you partial credit for it and you're like, it's the right answer. Why'd I get partial credit? And she says, because you didn't show your, your work, right? That's what a temptation is. It's your chance to show your work. It's a chance to prove your faith, your virtue, and your character, okay? So, um, if I'm tempted and I do not fall to the temptation, it shows a strength in my faith and my virtue and my character, right? Okay. However, if I give in to the temptation, then I go to the next step, which is the next word, which is enticed. And one of the things that I pointed out in my notes, if you can see, it says the word bait or caught by or catch by bait. So let's use the example of stealing, okay? Um, perhaps there's the temptation when I realize my finances are not where I want them to be, and the quick and easy way to get my finances to a better place is to steal. Now, at that point, I have a choice. Walk away from the temptation to steal and choose something more honorable to improve my finances, or I start to become a bit enticed by the idea of a quick fix and um, the bait, the enticement might come when my boss asks me to count money at the end of a shift and put the money in the safe. I'm counting the money. My boss is never going to know if there's 100 or $200 missing, right? There's the enticement. There's the bait. Did my boss do anything wrong in asking me to count the money? No, of course not. God's not doing this to us. 
but the opportunity is there. I'm a bit enticed by it. The next step in James's understanding of what happens is this lust and desire thing. It's this moment that you realize that the thing you want or the path you're pursuing is wrong. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Think about the fruit on the tree. It was clear that they were not to eat of that tree and yet they chose to eat of it anyway. If God hadn't laid the rules down, then how would he have ever held them to the rules? He would have said, ah, my bad, I forgot to tell you about that tree. In the future, don't eat from that tree. But that's not how the story goes. The story is that God clearly told them, don't eat from that tree, and then they did. There's this moment when they look at it and they go, I want that thing that's forbidden. And so that's why I wrote under lust and desire, it's a craving, a desire for what is forbidden. So now I see the money that my boss has asked me to count. Now I've thought, okay, he would never know if I took it. But I've had that moment where I go, but it's wrong. It's forbidden. But the bait's there, right? And so this is where the next word comes in. I added a word. At the bottom of my note page, you'll see the word conceived. And it means, you can translate that as to take prisoner. I don't know. Conceived, maybe it's because I'm a guy. I'm not sure. It doesn't sit with me. I didn't like, I didn't resound with it. And I was like, how do I understand this idea better? to take prisoner, when the bait takes you prisoner. It puts blinders on you. So think about like a horse and buggy going down the highway. You're down there, southern end of Lancaster, going down Route 30, you see the buggies all over the road. Every single one of those horses has blinders on it. Why? So they don't get distracted by everything that's over here, so they focus on one thing. So I'm sitting there with the money, my boss is never gonna know. I know it's wrong, but I can't see anything else. I'm craving the forbidden thing and it has now taken me prisoner. It's put blinders on me. And so what's the next step? It's sin. And this word hamartia is the word that we see most prevalently translated as sin in the New Testament. And so you probably heard a sermon before where somebody said the word sin means missing the mark. Anybody ever heard that before? Right, you can think of like an archer shooting at a target and they miss the target. That, that's, that's all this word means. Okay? And I don't mean to downplay sin, I just mean to give you a very real definition of what it is. It means missing the mark. God has given you a command, God has given, shown you the way, he wants you to live, and you've missed the mark. So now you took the money, now you committed the sin, now you actually did it. You took the 100 to 200, you put it in your pocket, and you have missed the mark. Sin. God has called you to something better than Stealing. And sin leads to death. We know that. And Paul in Romans said, for the wages of sin is death. Or as James says here, he actually uses the word finish three times in a row. He says, finish, finish, finish. And it just, the way they translate that is to mean to complete entirely. And so the way you can kind of picture this is that when sin has used you up, when it has chewed you up and spit you out, the only thing that's left is death. For the wages of sin is death. Now, I don't know if that's a super helpful explanation for you this morning, to go through it little bit by little bit like that and go through it with an example. But, but here's why it's helpful for me. When I look at that, what I realize James is telling me is that there is a whole lot of off-ramps before I get to the destination of sin and death. There's a whole lot. 
There's the moment when I think about my finances being in bad shape and I think, man, I could just steal something. Well, get off that ramp. There's the moment when my boss asks me to count money and I think, man, he just, he would never know. Get off the ramp. There's the moment when the blinders get on me and I start to get focused on it. Get off the ramp. I still haven't done it yet. There's a whole bunch of off-ramps for us. And so perhaps the challenge for us this morning in whatever you deal with temptation-wise is recognizing that you don't have to give in to it. So you did this morning. You gave in to temptation and did something you didn't want to do. Okay. You did yesterday, this week, whatever it is. Okay, put that behind you for a moment and recognize that there's a whole bunch of off-ramps that you can choose to not do it again. Perhaps a part of our Christian maturity is actually choosing those off-ramps. Maybe someday we'll get to the point where we can go, that doesn't even tempt me anymore. I don't even think about picking up a cigarette or taking a drink or whatever that thing is that you struggled with for so long. Doesn't even bother me anymore. Great. But there's a whole lot of steps between that one and this one that you can choose to get off the ramp now. So why don't we start taking those steps? Why don't we stop saying, I'm not good enough and I can't do it and actually start doing something about it? James is calling us to live something out. But here is the wonderful thing that nobody in the Bible ever calls you to. They don't call you to do it by yourself. This Bible points toward community every step of the way. You aren't alone. And this morning, you come here, you're not alone. It's your first time here, first time joining us online, great, you're not alone. Right here in this room, you got 60 people with you. Online, you got dozens more. There are all sorts of ways you can plug in. We have at least two Bible studies going on during the week, and I know we have a women's Bible study going on. Do you want to meet people you want to connect? Join in. There are places you can join in. You can volunteer on a Sunday morning. You can come early and hang out in the lobby and get to know people. There are all sorts of ways that you can engage in community if you choose. Nobody is an island, and we have made it possible that you can develop relationships here. And so perhaps part of our Christian maturity is not always trying to white-knuckle this thing and do it by ourselves and choose the off-ramp, it's saying, I can't do this by myself and I need help. And so I am going to make friends with somebody. I'm going to choose to trust somebody. Though I've been burned before, I'm going to trust somebody and ask them to hold me accountable. Just like a sponsor would hold somebody who struggles with alcoholism accountable. When that person walks in the bar and they order that drink and they have that moment where they go, I don't really want to take this drink, but I feel like I have to. And they call their sponsor. What does the sponsor do? The sponsor is there for them in that moment to help them not take the drink. Part of our Christian maturity is realizing you don't do this by yourself. So stop it. You're not alone. You're not alone. Hear me. You're not alone. You can choose to be alone. There's a whole lot of off-ramps you can take as you deal with these temptations and trials and these struggles. One of the off-ramps is saying, I'm not alone, I need help, I need an accountability partner, so I'm gonna take a risk. I'm gonna trust somebody, and I'm gonna ask for help. I think the church, the modern-day church, could learn a lot from AA. If you've never been to an AA meeting, you should check one out sometime. 
I think there's a lot of temptations and struggles in this world, and I think every single person in this room has their share. Both the things that are placed in our lap without our control and the things that we choose over and over and over again. We could do a lot better job if we walk through this life as one another's sponsors as we deal with the temptations of this world. James begins to bring the section to a close then. He says these words. He says, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. And he's saying, don't be deceived by those who blame their troubles on God. Don't be deceived by people who say, that's God's issue, that's God's fault. God placed that on me. God gave me this leadership and this thing. God gave me this temptation, so I'm never gonna overcome it. Don't be deceived by the people that blame God for their sin. Instead, remember every good thing and every perfect gift that is given to us comes from the Father above. Hear that, like have that wash over you for a moment this morning, okay? Every good thing and every perfect gift that is given to us comes from the Father above. So I'm gonna talk about my hand. It's been a bit of a trial for me over the last six weeks, and some of you guys are more aware of it, and some of you guys are less aware of it. About six weeks ago, I was outside at my house, and I tripped, and I fell, put my hands out to stop myself, and I landed in my flower bed, <laughs> of all places. And when I looked down at my hand, there was a big hole in my hand. Something in my flower bed had impaled my hand, it had hit an artery, and I was in some trouble. I ended up going and getting stitches and getting things taken care of. But in the days that followed, two of my fingers on my hand began to curl like this. And that didn't seem right. Um, I called the, the doctor and he said, just give it some time. It might heal, might be fine. If it doesn't by you know, 10 days out, then you should call a specialist. <laughs> Great. So I waited 10 days and it, it just kind of got worse. And in fact, I started not being able to move my fingers in all directions, and so I called a specialist, and um, they immediately sent me to another specialist, and as it turns out, the muscles in this part of my hand had started to die because a nerve they thought had been severed, and it wasn't getting what it needed. And so the prognosis that they gave me was that the fingers on my hand would continue to curl until I couldn't stop them anymore, and I would lose function of these fingers, and so I would have essentially three fingers on my hand. Uh, and they said the best thing they could do is do surgery, and they would try to repair it. If they could find the problem, they would repair it. So you can imagine the gamut of emotions during the weeks that I'm going through this that I'm feeling, right? I, I could throw my hands up to heaven. I could say, God, why'd you do this to me? God, you tripped me and made me fall in the flower bed. Or God, you could have made my hand not hit whatever the sharp thing was that was in my flower bed. You know, could have done all that. I could have been asking the question, who popped my tire on 283, right? Where is God with the box of nails? But that's not helpful. I don't think that God was out there going, and this is gonna be funny, and knock me over, right? That's, I don't think that's what was happening. And I'll be honest, through the process, I had a lot of temptation to give in to a lot of different things. Anger, um, frustration, especially in moments where I was up here preaching and my fingers felt like they were flopping around because I couldn't stop them or I tried to put it in my pocket and I would jam my finger. You know, very frustrating. Um, or 
And I'll be honest, I totally gave in to anxiety and fear. On Monday, I went in for surgery, and I'm sitting there in the prep room waiting to go in. Carissa's with me, and I was just like, I'm so scared this isn't going to work because I don't think I would make a very good disabled person. I think I would be really, really frustrated my whole life if I couldn't use my hand. I'm, you know, you heard, I carpentry, all sorts of stuff. I'm a very much hands-on person. I don't know how I would deal with that. Um, definitely gave in to some of that. Did God make me give in to that? No. I thank you for the resounding no, wherever that came from. My own brokenness led me there. My own fear, my own anxiety about the future, my own lack of trust in God for whatever was gonna unfold. That led me to those places. So on Monday, I got surgery. Uh, yesterday, I took my bandage off for the first time to rewrap it, and um, what I found was that I could move my pinky for the first time in six weeks. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. I ran across my house to the room where my wife was, and I'm like, look at this, look at this. And she's like, what am I looking at? And I'm like, this little tiny movement, I couldn't do that before. You know, and, and so she's excited with me, you know. I thank God for the surgeon who did the work that he did, but I also thank God for the, being the great physician who had this whole thing in his control the whole time. Will it heal the whole way? I have no idea, only time will tell. But what I do know is that I can trust in the great physician for whatever the outcome will be. I can trust that I'm a part of a community of people who have offered so many times to mow my grass or help me out, or whatever it is, even just this week as I recover from surgery. I can trust that I'm not alone as I deal with this thing. That's something that I'm in the midst of right now, and I'm doing it imperfectly. But I wanted to be honest with you because I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how imperfectly you're going through it. I don't know how frustrated you are. I don't know if you wanna shake your fist at the heavens and blame God. And guess what, if you do, that's fine because God can handle it. But no, God isn't the one causing these things, but you have an opportunity right now to show your character, to show your virtue and to show your faith as you walk through this trial. And you get to choose if that's what you're going to do or not. And so here's the thing, here's the way James finishes this passage. He says this, you know, every good and perfect gift is from, uh, from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all creation. God delights in us. Maybe that's not the picture you grew up with with God. Maybe the picture of God you grew up with was a really angry God somebody who was just waiting to catch you doing something wrong so he could send the lightning bolt to catch you as you came into church because you did something bad outside of church, whatever it might be. Maybe that's the picture. But here's the picture I want you to have this morning. God delights in you. He delights in you. Like, like he delights in the first fruits of creation. Think about your garden at home. Think about the very first strawberry that turns red that you go out and you're like, oh, they're all white and green, but that one's red. I'm gonna pick it off and I'm gonna try it. And oh, it's so sweet, it's so juicy, it's so perfect. And you delight in that first fruit. God delights in you like the first fruit from your garden. God delighted in me in my excitement about the tiny little movement of my pinky. He delighted in the excitement of my wife. He delighted in the thumbs up my three-year-old gave me because she knows I'm that much closer to wrestling again. <laughs> 
But God delights in you when you choose him over your desire for forbidden fruit. God delights and revels in your endurance through the hard time that you're going through. He's with you on the roof as the wind pushes you. God delights in your decision to set aside judgment and instead pick up love. God revels in you as the first fruit of all creatures in heaven and on earth. You are his. He is with you. He will not forsake you and he will not leave you no matter what lies before you. Which is why when we go through trials, we can say things like, my eyes are on you. It is well with me as we go through them. The encouragement that I wanna leave you with this morning is to know that you're not alone. God loves you, delights in you, revels in you, and God is with you in the worst of moments and in the best of moments. Beyond God, you're not alone because you have each other. We just went through a summer series trying to create community. Let us not lose it. Come, be a part of this community. Come and join us early for a cup of coffee and talk and get to know. Join in one of the three Bible studies that is going on throughout the week. Engage in this stuff more. Trust somebody for the first time in years and say, I need help, I need accountability in this area. Come and talk to one of our leaders, to me, to one of our leaders on church board and say, I've got questions and they're hard and they're big and I feel like I'm this close to walking away. I just need someone to talk to. Come, you are not alone. Let's pray. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you wanna connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.